Hey, Sanctus Church, good morning and welcome again to week two in our summer series. Whether you're watching this online, on demand, on a podcast, you're watching this live at Site 5, or you're at one of our physical locations, or you're listening to this years later, you're most welcome today. Again, like I just shared, this is week two in our summer series. And this whole summer, we're, we're going to begin to wrestle down these questions. Um, where, where can we share the good news of Jesus every week? Where can we be uh, confronted, encouraged, called again to actually be with people in this post-pandemic world? And where could we provide, provide fresh vision around the need and the power of hospitality and its relationship to leading people to Jesus? And as we wrestled all this through, we realized, of course, it's all found in one certain environment. It's where Jesus ate with people. Uh, Jesus was a foodie. If you've noticed, he was always eating with people and going to parties and having early and mid and late night dinners. Uh, and, and over those meals, as we found out even last week, he broke berries. He shattered expectations. He shows us what it is to love a neighbor. But also in those moments, he reveals actually his true nature. And he also begins to reveal what he calls people to, what he invites people to. So I just want to say this again. This is uh, an important summer series. If you've not crossed the line of faith, that is if you're seeking or skeptical or unsure about the Christian faith or you're from another religion or you're spiritual or semi-Christian, every week if you join us or even just for one week, you're going to see who Jesus is, what he's offering, and there's no better way to check out the Christian faith by other than walking with Jesus and seeing him over food. For others of us, we've crossed the line of faith. We also will be encouraged week in and week out with the gospel, which we all desperately need. But also we're going to see Jesus' call to be with others. People that we're comfortable with and people that we're not comfortable with. To see the power of hospitality and why we must not just be with people we're comfortable with. Let's start here. Can you eat snacks late at night or do you eat snacks late at night? Raise your hand if you're in a physical location, even on a couch, somewhere in a cottage, raise your hand. Do you, are you a late night snacker? Uh-huh. And is it sweet or savory? Are you like eating on eating pizza or are you doing the ice cream thing? Or let me ask you a different question. Uh, can you drink coffee late at night anymore? At 23 or 24, I was like, no, I, I got to stop. If I have like a coffee past four o'clock, I'm up all night. My dad, who's in his early 70s, can drink like a full-on coffee like at nine or 10 o'clock at night, and he's just fine. The passage we're going to hang out in today, this is where I imagine Jesus is having a late-night meal or a late-night snack, or actually he's having a late-night coffee with someone of great importance. And, and by the way, let me just set the stage like this. This conversation is one of the most important conversations actually in the whole Bible, uh, from Genesis to Revelation. So before we get to late night lattes, I just want to stand back and sort of paint the whole picture. Here in Canada and probably in many other places in the world, people tend to live in two ways. There's the live fast and play hard and die young and leave a good looking corpse worldview. Then there's the be nice, be good, be a neighbor, don't do too much bad, do family, work, have fun, fill your life with entertainment, travel, and find love if you can, and live a little. And then, of course, there's all the mixture between those two. Be good, be bad, be a little of both. That is why, by the way, Jesus' life and his words and his teaching and his call are so threatening to, well, every one of us. 
Jesus says to the live fast and, and party hard and hedonist crowd and also to the moral, kind, good, maybe religious, Canadian, polite, socially involved, giving to the United Way type of person, there's no difference between either of you when it comes to encountering God. And we say, excuse me, excuse me, and we pull out our list to show God why and others why there is a huge difference. See, the hardest people to bring to Jesus, those that actually find Jesus the most unreasonable are actually nice, good, involved people. Good, moral, kind, nice people, whether they're secular or deeply religious or spiritual, find Jesus hard to meet when they really begin to understand his call. See, Jesus says again and again, being good, kind, or religious or involved or spiritual does not allow, does not give you access to God, does not give you eternal life. Not everything you do is bad or evil, but it cannot give you eternal life. See, most human beings, no matter where you live in the world, think about spirituality and eternal life through the idea of a scale. Whether you talk to someone who's sort of a little spiritual or highly religious or part of another faith, uh, people basically, even atheists and agnostics who don't fully believe in the supernatural, talk about this between human beings. They basically say, "Here, my life is like a scale and my good outweighs my bad, I'm a good person. If my bad outweighs my good, I'm a bad person. When you talk to people about God or spirituality or eternal life, they say, well, I'm a good person and I'm, I'm a nice person. And if I face God, whatever it is or he or she is, or they fill in all these blanks, when I face God, my good will probably outweigh my bad and then whatever he's going to give me, I'll, I'll get. But see, this is why Jesus's words are so offensive, so piercing, almost seeming too simple because he says there is no scale. Now, one of the best and strongest stories about being good and being lost all at once is found in John chapter 3. It reads like this in John chapter 3, verse 1. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, and he was a member of the Jewish ruling council. Now, John, if you read John 1, 2, and 3, as he's unfolding his story, his narrative, he moves us from all these massive crowds now just to one person whose name is Nicodemus. Now, most of us would read this verse and keep on going, but the description of him makes Jesus' call to believe powerful and clear and crisp and convicting. Uh, Nicodemus is three things. Pharisee, part of the ruling Jewish council, and then it says in verse 10, he is one of Israel's teacher, teachers. Now, now, why does this matter? Well, this guy is amazing. This is a really good guy, and he does not even understand his real need. So, let's just unpack this a little bit. First, he's a Pharisee. And like I've shared many times before, if you've done church for a while, you know the Pharisees always get a bad rap. But don't miss this again. Actually, Pharisees were really good people. And if you read a lot of history, in most places in Jewish culture, they were viewed as better, more religious, more honest, and more helpful to the everyday person. They were looked up to. Pharisee just means separated one. They were known as lay preachers and scholars, and they were about helping ordinary people help them get to connect and know God. They, they weren't involved in the religious games or the systems of the wealthy or the elite. They lived with, they hung out with everyday people. They weren't super wealthy necessarily. They weren't super religious with all the power. Now their life was being separated, monitoring and obeying or trying to obey all of God's written laws in the Old Testament. But then they invented something called the oral law, which is 613 invented laws that they also tried following. And like I shared last week, here's the mentality. If you've got God's law, like do not murder, do not lie, do not steal, that's from God, that violates his nature, don't do this. They invent a bunch of other human-made laws here, 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 like fences to make you trip 
so you never actually get to this one and actually break the real one. Now, it seems like a good idea, but then they start actually saying that God's law and the oral law are equal in authority, and then they start actually believing that what they did, not God working in them, was better, and then it became religion, not regeneration, religion, not relationship, religion, not heaven-given rest. So that's what a Pharisee is. Nicodemus is also part of the Jewish ruling council called the Sanhedrin. Now, this is sort of an interesting moment. This is made up of the high priest, the priest class, and the scholars. They are the greatest minds of, uh, of Jewish law and Jewish faith and history. And interesting, by this time in history, because of the Romans, they had been given jurisdiction, authority, legal authority over every single Jew on earth, no matter where they lived. So here's how I would work this out. It's like if you took the U.S. version of the Supreme Court, and then you took our parliament, and then you took the Vatican and Rome and mixed them all together, that's what the Sanhedrin is. And he's part of it. Now later, he's also called a teacher of Israel. He's regarded as one of the best religious teachers and thinkers out of all the Jews living on earth 2,000 years ago. He's a serious thinker. He's got real questions, real answers. Guarantee he's got a PhD or two. He's the incarnation of smarts and religion. He's a lover of truth, and he loves people. So let me break it down like this. Educated, religious, committed, looked up to. Everyone, I guarantee, would point to his life, his giving, his teaching, his volunteerism to everyday people and say, that guy. I mean, that guy knows God. He reflects God. He understands God. He's a model for us. He's a really nice guy. I'm sure God must be so impressed with him. I'm sure impressed by, by him. And if anyone knows God, well, it's got to be Nicodemus. Well, this man that we would all look up to also is about to come face to face with the God he has spent his life learning about, teaching about, and representing. He's about to come face to face with Jesus. And he's going to find out the truth. Now, never forget how John starts the Gospel of John. Because the very first verse in the Gospel of John reveals the truthful nature of Jesus. All the way back at creation. John 1.1. In the beginning at creation was the Word. That's Jesus, by the way. And the Word was with God at creation, and the Word was God. The Word was with God in the beginning. Whoa. So the guy sitting with Nicodemus is fully human, but he's also fully God. And the conversation begins like this. Late at night, I imagine over a coffee. He came to Jesus at night, verse 2, and said, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you're doing if God was not with them. Why at night? Fear? Guarding his reputation, maybe? He's a really prominent man. Maybe he didn't want to see or be seen with a threat to the institution he was part of. Maybe he was genuinely a seeker. Maybe he was there on behalf of others to see if they could work out some truce or peace because, by the way, there had already been open confrontation in the temple between Jewish leaders and Jesus. We're not told. There are many different reasons why. But notice, he meets him at night. It's in secret. And Jesus is there. And he calls Jesus something. Rabbi. This is a term of great respect. And high esteem, you've come from God, he says. I know you're the real deal. I see something in you and your actions, your miracles. I mean, it's from God. You're from God. So notice this. It's the signs that begin the conversation. But actually, it's not where the conversation is going to go. And still, Nicodemus does not fully understand that the one in front of him is not just sent from God. He is God. 
So Jesus, like I just said, doesn't stay with the miracles long. So Jesus almost like cuts him off over those lattes late at night, and he goes straight to the heart of the matter. I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Jesus says you cannot be part of the kingdom of God unless there is a condition. And by the way, let's just do this again. When you read the phrase, the kingdom of God, or in Matthew, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God or heaven is not the Jewish nation and the Jewish people. The kingdom of God is not any nation on earth. The kingdom of God is not Sanctus Church or any church or the church. It's any place or space where the reign and rule of God is welcome and accepted through Jesus. So watch this. You're not in the space of God. You're not in the reign and rule of God. You're not in the environment of God unless dot, 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 you're born again. You're reborn from above. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but you should. Birth is not something you can do to yourself. You can't conceive yourself. You really can't get ready for your birth. Our existence, our birth, all of it is given by others and we have no say in it. And by the way, that's the point. By the way, if you've missed it, see, that's the scandal and the beauty of the Christian faith. Salvation is a God deal. He starts the process. He sustains the process. He brings us to life. He brings us to faith. He, he gives us relationship. You just can't do this thing. It's a gift from start to finish. It's all a miracle. It's another stepping in to make us exist. So Nicodemus... You think you're part of the kingdom of God because you're a Jew and you have the Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi, the Torah, the prophets, the law, but you're religious, you're good, you've done a lot to prove you're part of the member, a member of the kingdom of God and, and you know the living God. But just one question I've got, just one little one. Uh, Nicodemus, have you been born a second time? Jesus' words sit in the air in front of this really, really profound person. Either Nicodemus doesn't want to answer, he doesn't get the conversation. He says, look, this is crazy. This is ludicrous. How, how can a man be born when he is old? Verse 4. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. I love when one said about him, all of us, just like him, are a bundle of doubts and uncertainties and wishes and hopes and fears and habits and good and bad built up throughout the years. It would be wonderful to break the past and make a complete fresh beginning. But how can that be possibly done? Can physical birth be repeated? No. And since this is a lesser miracle, it is quite impossible for us to envisage such a grander miracle, the remaking of a person's essential essence. Regeneration, true heart change, is sheer impossibility. Jesus says, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he's born of, the water, born of water and of the spirit. Okay, then you're like, well... John, what does born of water and born of the Spirit mean? Well, there are four views about the water. Some say it's John the Baptist's baptism. So you've got to repent and be baptized, and then you prepare yourself, and then you meet Jesus. Lots of other people say, oh, no, this, this is about Christian baptism. See, you're saved by the act of Christian baptism and believing on Jesus. But the problem with that is Christian baptism just doesn't exist. The church doesn't even exist at this point. In pharisaical language, in, in, in rabbi's language, the word water multiple times means two other things. It can mean sperm. Um, it can also mean, of course, literal water. In other words, when a woman is having a baby, what breaks? Her water breaks. And see, it, it's those last two ideas that is what Jesus is referring to here. He's saying, like, 
you're physically born and then you got to be spiritually born. That's why he says in verse 6, flesh gives birth to flesh, either conception or the water breaking, but the spirit gives birth to the spirit. In other words, you can't evolve from flesh to spirit. You can't use the power of you. You can't use the power of religion. You can't use the power of good works, education, psychology, science, the, the power of your story, the power of pain, uh, the fighting for social justice and rights. None of that gives you entrance or encounter with God. None of that gets relationship with God. It takes divine intervention. Someone else has to make you be born. So Jesus that night, imagining again over coffees, under those stars, look at this man. Remember, he made this good, sincere man, and says, you should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. Now, the bomb drops. Don't miss the offense of Jesus. Don't miss the call to this good, kind, moral, religious person. No one, no one can experience the reign of God. No one can have relationship with God, no matter their history or race or religious acts. All your theological learning, all your spiritual insights, all your doubts, uncertainties, wishes, hopes, fears, habits, none of them help you. They're not evil, they just don't open the door. It's like Jesus leans in and says, hey, Nick, you know God's will, right? I mean, you know the Ten Commandments. You've lived your whole life around them. You've got the Torah. You've got the prophets from Genesis to Malachi. You've learned them from childhood. You know who God is way more than Romans or Greeks or what they would have called back then barbarians. You know his will for families, for, for the world, for relationship. You can discern right and wrong, wrong, which makes you superior, right? And you think you're far beyond the ignorant masses of those people who keep worshiping idols and demons. And because you're a Jewish man, you're circumcised, so you've got God's mark. So that makes you good, right? All that stuff, no. No, actually no again. A real person that has encountered the only true living God does not trust in what they do because they cannot do it perfectly all the time. And Nicodemus, you know God is perfect and he demands perfection. And so you need help, right? You need heaven given change because your best efforts, they don't cut it, no pun intended. Years ago when I was Looking at this passage, I um, found an, uh, a version of Chicken Little, but it was from uh, a country uh, in the Middle East. And it's a variation of one some of you know. It says that there was a young, uh, young man, an Arab man, who was traveling along the road on his donkey one day. He came upon a small fuzzy object lying on the ground, and he dismounted and looked at it closely, found a sparrow lying on its back with its scrawny little legs thrust skyward. At first, he thought it was dead. But a closer investigation, the bird was very much alive. So the young man asked the sparrow, are you all right? Oh, the sparrow says, yes, yes, I'm just fine, thank you. Then the young man said, well, what are you doing lying on your back with your legs pointed up towards the sky? And the sparrow responded, he had heard a rumor that the sky was falling, so he was holding up his legs to, su to support the sky. And, and the young man said, you surely don't think you're going to hold up the whole sky with those two scrawny little legs, do you? And the sparrow, after a very thoughtful moment, responded, well, one does the best that they can. See, that's religion. That's human achievement at its best. One does the best that they can. Jesus says, you know, Nicodemus, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear it sound, you can't tell where it came from or where it's going. So it's the same with everyone born of the Holy Spirit. 
Now, Jesus, of course, is not commenting on our modern knowledge of scientific meteorology and how we know. Listen, the ancients used to view wind as mysterious, unpredictable. And his point is the Holy Spirit calls and saves and transforms unexpectedly. It never starts or it just shows up. He shows up. But it never starts with you being good or moral. How can this be, Nicodemus asked. And Jesus said, well, you're Israel's teacher. And you don't understand these things? The penny drops, desperately pulling his philosophy and theology or religious background, which told him religion and acts of personal goodness and righteousness and ethnic history and covenantal history will gain relationship with God. And Jesus is saying, actually, it's faith, not action. It's faith first, then action. Good works come after being born again, not as an entrance. It's signs of life given to you. I, I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know, and we testify to what we've seen, but, but still you people don't accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things, and you don't believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one, no one has gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Boom. Listen, Nick, you and I both know something, right? No person who has ever ascended into heaven has not fallen back down. I mean, we first of all even know what's the original sin. Satan ascending into heaven, the son of dawn trying to fell down. Think about Babel. We human beings in history, we tried and what happened? We fell back down. But see, Nicodemus, I'm different. My authority comes from heaven. I have more authority than you and more authority than all the books that you've written or read. I have more authority than the temple. See, humans can't physically ascend to heaven and Satan who tried was thrown out too. But God, oh, the true living God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he can come down and live among us. Me. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. In case you're missing what I'm saying, I, Nicodemus, am the son of man. I existed before I was born. I came from heaven. Oh, scandal. Now, don't forget, Nicodemus is a world-class expert on the Old Testament. So right when Jesus said the phrase, son of man, he knew exactly what he was claiming. This 30-something, uneducated, unaffirmed, backwater leader is claiming that he existed before he was born and he came from heaven. And he's the one they've all been waiting for, for generations. See, the son of man phrase, we learned this in our Revelation series, comes from the time of Daniel. And it says in Daniel 7, 13, don't get distracted right now. This is really important. Daniel says, in my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. And the son of man approached the ancient of days, that's God, and was led into God's presence. And he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. And all people and all nations and people from every language worshiped the son of man. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So the son of man shares in God's worship, mind-blowing, and the son of man has God's own authority, which, by the way, if you understand the Old Testament, means that the son of man is equal with God. And so Jesus is like, hey, by the way, that's me. And before Nicodemus can respond or throw his coffee or anything, Jesus just keeps going and he throws another Old Testament grenade out when he says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the son of man will be lifted up, that everyone who believes in the son of man may have eternal life. Now, again, this matters. Nicodemus would get this on the spot. Maybe we don't. Jesus is referring to this wild moment in Numbers 21 during the time of Moses. And it says that the Jewish people traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. 
And they grew impatient on the way, and they spoke against God, and they spoke against Moses and said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? There's no bread, there's no water. We detest this miserable food. And then God sent venomous snakes among them and bit the people, and many Israelites died. And the people came to Moses and said, we've sinned, we've spoken against God and against you. Pray that God will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, make a snake, put it on a pole, and anyone who's bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake, put it up on a pole, and then anyone who was bitten by a snake would just look at that bronze snake, and they lived. So here's what Jesus is saying. Ready? Nicodemus, just like your Jewish ancestors only had to look, to trust in God's work, to be healed. So this is how you are born again. All you need to do is do the same. Look. Trust, give your life to someone else when they're lifted up. And when they're lifted up, you get healed. And by the way, Nicodemus, if you're missing this, I'm the son of man, I'm going to be lifted up. So to be born again, to be born from above, to know, to be forgiven for sin against God, you need to start, stop looking at yourself and stop looking at other people and look at me. Here's the point. Jesus is telling him new birth comes through the simple gaze looking at another for salvation. Now at this moment, the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus fades away and John moves from one person to the world. Sin leads people to hide from God. Adam and Eve hid from God when they sinned and every human being has been doing it ever since, whether through wild living or hedonism or religion fill in all the isms. But just like Nicodemus, Jesus has come into the world to face us to see what we will do with him. And then it's this next verse, the most famous verse in the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, whoever believes in Jesus, the son of man, right? Shall not die, but be given eternal, everlasting life. I love when one person wrote this, and by the way, this is going to help some of you undo some wrong views of God. He wrote this. Religion likes to pretend it's God. It's God is good and loving. But in reality, all religious devotion is fueled by a secret dread that God is looking for an excuse to condemn those who do not please him. Now, this is important. Well, a holy God, which God is, must punish sin in accordance with justice. He does not delight to destroy what he's created or crafted with such care. God is the author of life. Sin is the cause of destruction. Whereas religion worships a sinister and sadistic God who delights in suffering and the destruction of people, Jesus reveals the true nature of God. He longs to see his creation saved from the just penalty of sin and thrive forever in his presence. Therefore, the Son of God came to earth to save all of humanity from, from, from judgment. I mean, this is incredible hope. That's why it says in verse 17, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned. Ah, but whoever does not believe in Jesus stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This is the verdict. Light is coming to the world, but men and women and kids love darkness instead of light because their deeds are evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. Whoever lives by the truth comes into the light, so it may be plainly seen that what he has done has been done through 
God. Here's the point. Jesus is the only Savior because he's the only one that has come from heaven. Jesus is the only Savior because he's the Son of Man. Jesus is the only Savior because he's the only one that's ever been perfect and will always be consistently perfect. Jesus is not part of our problem. He's the solution to our problem. But the point is, if you trust in anyone else, any other religious leader, any other system, anyone else, anything else, other than Jesus for abundant life and eternal life, you then have to replace Jesus. These words, which I just read, exclude forever, forever remove the possibility that salvation, relationship, encounter with the true living God is given or earned or bought or bribed by us. You will be forever removed, forever hidden from God. That is condemned if you trust in, if you believe in, if you hope in, if you have confidence in any other religious system, any other savior, any other movement, anything, any other action other than Jesus. There is no scale. There is no other system. You'll never be moral enough to be okay. If Nicodemus doesn't get in, none of us get in. Nicodemus, by the way, would represent the best religious people on the planet today. And they don't cut it because everyone needs an external savior. So here's the question. Are you Nicodemus? You must be born again. You must believe. Now, by the way, what does believing mean? Oh, I believe Jesus was a historic person. Or, yeah, there was a guy named Jesus who walked around. Or, yeah, I really admire him. He was quite amazing. Or, I even want to sort of imitate him and become like him. I mean, out of all the people who have ever lived, I think he's pretty good and his teachings aren't bad. No, no. <laughs> John's call here says, if you say, I believe in Jesus Christ, what you're really saying is, I know him, I've met him, I trust him, I've placed my complete confidence in him. Everything I know about this life, what happens just before my death, during my death, and after my death depends on Jesus alone. That's what it means to believe. Oh, and not only does that what it mean, it also means you have to accept the true identity of Jesus. Jesus isn't just a prophet. He's not just a revolutionary. He's not just an amazing social justice moral force. No, no. He's the son of man. He's the only son of God. He's the only incarnation of God in human history. He's more than a prophet. He is God in flesh. He's the savior of the world. When you say you believe in Jesus, you say he is who he claimed. I say amen. I say yes, that is true. You also put all of your hope in his work, not your work. And how do you do that? Will you trust in the work of Jesus as he was lifted up on the cross? You ask him because of his sacrifice to cover your sin. That's why there's an old prayer that's been prayed for almost 2,000 years, which is just Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. The decision for some of you, one of you, many of you listening to this, is you the good and kind and religious and the very Canadian nice person. You either choose Jesus or you choose pride. If you have no pride, then his words are freedom. You'll, you'll see what a burden it is trying to prove yourself to God and actually trying to actually fulfill life and find purpose. 
But if you're full of pride, his word's incredibly offensive. But all that you're trusting in right now, whether it's your health or your looks or your education or the movement you're part of, they won't last. What do you do with Jesus? What do you do with him? Now, some, some of us, many of us listening to this, um, have already said yes. And, and the takeaway, by the way, today is small, but it's really important. So let me just put it like this. Dear Christian, make sure you're open and close enough to have late night coffees with people that really want to think stuff through. If you're not close enough to people who don't know Jesus, how will they ever hear? You have to be in proximity to people. Jesus sat with Nicodemus, was with Nicodemus, uh, challenged him, answered his questions, but was present. The truth is that we really got isolated in the last two and a half years. And even before the pandemic, one of the great struggles of all churches is that when you become a Christian, you sort of get entrenched in church culture. And there's lots of good things about being in community. But you get cut off from many, many people who don't know Jesus yet, whether they're religious or not. So again, I just want to say to you, like I said last week, and you're like, John, are you going to give me more? No, actually. Who do you actually have a relationship with? What neighbors, what friends, what family members are you even in relationship with where you could have the coffee to have this conversation? That's one of the most important things you could wrestle out this summer. So let's, let's pray in two directions. First of all, if you're a seeker, skeptic, haven't crossed the line of faith uh, from another faith, and you're like, oh my goodness, I am Nicodemus, and you want to truly find purpose in life and be changed and say, just pray this, Lord Jesus have mercy on me, a sinner. I actually believe you're the Son of God. I do believe you're God in flesh. I believe you existed before you were born. You are the Son of Man. And I have trusted in so many things, and I've never trusted fully in you alone. So just like people had to look up at that snake in Moses' time, and then they were healed, I look to you, Jesus, and say, Jesus, heal me of my sin, my, my, my brokenness, my rebellion against God. I trust in your work, not my work. Make me born again. Change me from the inside out. Give me eternal life. I don't want to be condemned. I want to be your friend. Have mercy on me, a sinner. And then for us who are Christians, it's just this. Again, uh, Lord, would you, again, bring into relationship incredible people that you've made that you love, that don't know your son Jesus yet, and give us enough proximity and environment, not only just to be friends and to have coffees and to hang out well, but give us opportunity to share the good news of Jesus. Would you sovereignly this summer and beyond this summer give us Nate, you know, these late night lattes with Nick, these moments? And Lord, if we're just fully in the Christian bubble, would you begin to break that so new life can be found? Uh, we just pray this in Jesus' name and we all sit together. Amen.